Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Are you getting confused, despite the government press releases, about whether we're in an economic recovery or just treading water month after month? How about the question of inflation versus deflation? Or how about jobs recovery and overall financial health for most of our nation's families? I'd love to know how many in our listening audience have confidence that they understand whether their situations will be better or worse off over the next year or so. For now, I'll assume many are confused or at least questioning. That's my expectation because so-called news seems to look for drama and fosters a loyalty dependency to attract more eyeballs and sponsor retention. We at UCLA are interested in higher education, not drama, and certainly not politics. I'll start today by making some clear observations based on the data we've shared in our podcasts over the last year and a half and the most recent data that's become available over the past few weeks. After having been in the investing world for more than 25 years, from private banking and investment management to private and venture capital, I have pretty much been there and done that at one point or another. I want to share some clear and honest thoughts that kind of go beyond the drama in the press releases. And again, I'm not trying to generate drama. The paths of Congress and the Federal Reserve have pretty much converged. That's not the history. But at the present time, Congress and Federal Reserve are pretty much operating in a single political environment. And now there's only one path. Congress tries to pump up the economy and buy votes by plunging our country into so much debt that we can never repay it. History shows that every country that has put itself into this situation has ultimately had a failed currency and had to rebuild. And even in our country, we have been through this. And I encourage any listeners to look at the First National Bank of the United States, the Second National Bank. The Confederacy and the Confederate currency is sort of a real example, although many will put it as a one-off. But we have really been here where we have had to rebuild because we have inflated our currencies. And these are in dollars, and I'm really talking about the initial attempts to have national banking prior to the Federal Reserve. And there are actually more examples than what I mentioned. Given the Federal Reserve is now working in league with Congress and in league with political leadership to enable our country to keep operating at multi-trillion dollar annual deficits, we're all painted into a corner and that corner gets smaller and smaller. What do I mean by that? Well, the Federal Reserve continues to buy $120 billion of government and mortgage-backed securities every month. And if you multiply that by 12, you know, we are up to about $1.5 trillion a year of money being created to buy government securities. That was the same last year. They now have surpassed $8 trillion of assets on their balance sheet, where 10 years ago it was about $800 billion. About three years ago, three and a half years ago, it was about $4 trillion. So the Federal Reserve continues at almost a rapid pace of money creation. Congress also continues, as you know, because just as we get a $1 trillion program through Congress, they talk about a $2 trillion program or a $3 trillion program. 
Now we're talking about an infrastructure program that could be in the area of $3 trillion, and a lot of that $3 trillion, it's arguable whether it's infrastructure or not. So the spending continues, the money creation continues, and the Federal Reserve continues to argue that any issues such as inflation are transitory, and I very strongly contest that. The money creation has always been expansionary. It's always created currency weakness. And we've never seen money creation at the speed it's occurring now. And let's see what's happening with the money. Well, the Fed suggests that by providing excess reserves to the banking system, the banks will then lend those reserves. Has this happened? No. Is it happening? No. Where is the money going? It's going back into safe areas. Money is being put into the repo market for the Fed to generate a reciprocal arrangement where federal securities are overnight or over a week or month loaned back to the banks with all this excess cash the banks have, or the banks are actually placing the cash with the Federal Reserves as bank reserves getting a paltry interest rate, which is at least some interest rate. And this is to the point where the banks are not even apparently wanting to lend to each other in the repo market. We've talked about the repo market before, and back a little bit more than a year and a half ago, the signal which we called in one of our podcasts was that there was a problem in the repo market. It was a problem of banks having confidence of lending to other banks. Shortly after that, we had a couple of global banks declare major issues and major cutbacks in geography they serve, as well as major staff reductions. Now, we're seeing a very similar issue, but the amount of dollars are much larger than they were before. Banks apparently don't have confidence in lending to other banks, so the repo market now is flush with cash moving into it, with the Federal Reserve being challenged to provide the liquidity and provide the securities to lend to the banks who don't want to lend to each other. So we are in a new mess, and the mess that I just mentioned is now a trillion-dollar mess in the repo market. It was not that large a year and a half ago. All with the idea, following Keynesian economics by the Federal Reserve, that money creation will put more money in people's pockets, will drive up consumer spending, will boost gross domestic product, and all of that flatly has been wrong. The money flows from additions to the national debt and increases in the money supply have really flowed through large corporations, banks, non-banks, have driven the stock market, the bond market, and real estate prices higher, but have not made the average American family healthier financially. The general assumption by the Federal Reserve is by providing excess reserves to the banking system, the banks would then lend to businesses and and individuals to expand economic activity. Furthermore, the entire Federal Reserve premise of inflating asset prices is intended to boost economic activity from the result of boosting wealth. The issue is the wealth that has been boosted is in the upper 1% of the people in the country and the wealth effect is in the 1%. If you don't get that idea from watching art tokens selling for many tens of thousands of dollars, or the cryptocurrencies riding a volatile wave, if you really don't believe that the large holders of financial assets aren't benefiting, and and basically, if you're believing they don't have too much money, 
then you'd want to ignore the art market, the collectibles pricing, the record prices for uh, impressionistic art and so forth. I could go on and on, but I think the main point is that the money creation has benefited a very, very small percentage of the people at the very high end of wealth and income. And this has been after more than a decade of this monetary policy of keeping interest rates low, keeping the bond prices high, which is an axiom, basically. There is little evidence that supports the claims that the monetary policy has made the job market healthier or the typical family, average family, lower income families healthier financially. There is strong policy that the monetary policy that we continue to see leads to greater wealth inequality and actually slower economic growth. Job imbalance, where we have 5 million fewer jobs than we had before we went into the pandemic. The imbalance of where companies at the higher end of the job market, the uh, university educated or graduate certificates, graduate degrees in some of the technology, real estate, financial services areas, the demand, sure, is very strong there and compensation seems to be really increasing. But the vast bulk of the job holders across the country have had no measurable benefits and have actually suffered through losses in jobs. The only reason central bank liquidity seems to be a success is when it's viewed through the lens of the stock market and the bond market. Through the end of the second quarter of this year, about a month ago, using this quarterly data, the stock market has returned almost 198% from the 2007 peak. And that is more than eight times the gross domestic product growth in the United States, and it's almost four times the increase in corporate revenue. Unfortunately, the wealth effect, as mentioned, has only benefited a relatively small percentage of the overall economy. For example, the top 10% of income earners own nearly 90% of the stocks in the stock market. The rest of the country are struggling to make ends meet. And again, I'm just going to repeat that the impact of the Fed's monetary interventions on the equity value of the top 1% is the reason most don't feel richer and are not consuming more. And in fact, most families have not benefited at all. While short-term ongoing monetary interventions may appear to be expansionary, it creates negative incentives to economic activity and monetary velocity. Recall from your first economics course years ago that money velocity is defined as the number of times per year that all the dollars in circulation are spent. Before 08-09, the Great Recession, the money velocity was about two. In fact, going back about 50 years before, the Great Recession velocity was above 1.7 for all years except uh, one or two. Since the Great Recession, velocity has dropped lower and lower. And now, is just above one, which I think has never been seen before. It's 1.1 to be exact. What does this mean? Particularly when money supply keeps going higher and higher, it means almost all the new money being created is being hoarded somewhere. In the banks, yes. It's going into savings. It's going to pay down consumer and mortgage debt, but it's not being consumed. Why is this happening? because most have lost confidence in finding a job, lost confidence in keeping a job, or staying with a company until retirement, and so on. Since consumers are not consuming more in proportion to all the money that's being created, businesses, therefore, are not investing in new plant, equipment, and facilities, and therefore, 
new jobs are not being created. As I mentioned before, over 5 million fewer jobs exist now than existed in 2019. But the lack of confidence doesn't stop here. It's also very much in the banking sector. Banks don't want to lend, particularly to small businesses. I've seen estimates of 80% of small business lending requests not approved. Wells Fargo, as another example, a week or so ago, announced they are terminating personal lines of credit, which will have a strong ripple effect through small businesses as temporary cash needs often are met with owners' access to overdraft facilities, you know, typically ranging from thirty dollars to $100,000 each. Going back to the Fed, as noted above, they suggest that by providing excess reserves to the banking system, the banks will then lend these reserves. Each time the Fed has engaged in quantitative easing programs, the banks have hoarded those reserves as risk-reward of loaning money into the economy has not been justified to them. For example, in early 2020, as the economy was shut down due to the pandemic, companies tapped credit lines at their banks to ensure sufficient capitalization. After that initial surge in lending activity, banks reversed back into a more protectionary mode. And keep in mind, many of the government programs guaranteed that small businesses and small business lending would be forgiven. So the banks actually had risks mitigated, which is not really true going forward. And I might also mention, it's something to keep in mind, that since 2008-2009's Great Recession, the Fed has actually found ways to create lending facilities and liquidity facilities that amount to a total of almost $43 trillion, twice the size of the American economy. So we're coming out of an area where there have been incredible subsidies given to individuals, to families, to companies, to banks, and this is where we are. Companies just are not investing in new plant and equipment, and why should they if they don't see a future made up of higher demand for their products? And consumers won't demand or buy more products and services if they are financially stressed and uncertain about their own future incomes. These factors are driving the lack of new bank lending with the exception of residential housing, which is indeed a special case. Another reason for lower and lower money velocity is banks not wanting to lend to each other. This money is being, as I mentioned, being moved into the repo market. It's being deposited with the Federal Reserve Bank, but it is not really, as has been the case for decades, ending up of money flows from bank to bank in the repo market for lending. This sounds like an esoteric item, but it's really a big deal the more you would get into it. Bank lending in total across the United States has again fallen to the lowest levels witnessed during the 08-09 Great Recession. And that was when the real estate bubble was punctured. And I think many of you know many fallout effects of that. I think all of you witnessed house prices dropping 20, 30, 40% and credit generally unavailable at that time for home prices. Thankfully, that's not the case with the residential home market today. And actually, all of this I mentioned is not surprising, given that 80% of the population are living primarily paycheck to paycheck. 
the risk of repayment and defaults remains a disincentive for bank lending. For the banks, the risk preference is to hoard reserves for more profitable, less risky investment banking activities. And you can see a lot of the money being made and reported in the past few weeks by Goldman Sachs and the large global banks has been really in the investment banking area where a lot of money has moved allowing companies to buy other companies, allowing SPACs to buy companies, but again, pretty directly supporting the stock market. We are now moving past the period where a lot of the programs have been in effect, and I understand that banks are getting ready to see an increase in defaults once eviction moratoriums elapse. So September is going to be a key turning point. And COVID-related government checks to families terminate. And many of these terminations have actually started in a number of states. But most of these programs will be severely impacted in September. This is in an environment where the Federal Reserve is almost buying 100% of newly issued Treasury securities. So overall, the Fed has taken over total control of the credit markets. They are totally influencing and determining the interest rates. And the amount of facilities they put in place has is twice the size of the U.S. gross national product. The problem is, a problem, a big problem, is how can the Fed ever back off of these positions without putting the economy at substantial risk, causing major credit crises, new defaults with higher interest rates. So while the economic growth rate may be booming momentarily, inflation, which is destructive when not paired with higher rising wages, will not be transient, in my view. Given the massive surge in prices for homes, autos, and food, we can expect a bit of a reversal, but I see no signs that even with lumber prices going back to more of a historical level, that all the other prices, some of which are not really included directly in the consumer price index, like home prices, like rents, which again are surging. In any event, several respected private research companies have upped their forecasts of the official CPI, which I argue understates inflation, but they've upped their forecasts of the official CPI to the 6 to 9% range between now and year end. If this does occur, and it appears likely to me in any event it will, then it's also likely we'll witness the highest month-to-month CPI rates in about 50 years. And following that scenario, the Fed will likely continue to argue the inflation is transient. But the quite large risk is that the global bond investors, investment operations, organizations, funds that each control hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of bonds, may think otherwise, causing a run for the exits by selling bonds on a large scale. If this happens, and I think this is a clear and present risk, long-term interest rates will move up, putting pressure on all financial assets, including the stock market. So risks abound in my view. And the Federal Reserve requires that the government continue to issue new debt so money can be created. And I think that's a lock. I think it will. And basically the present course is going to continue on and on until it doesn't. Until the large sovereign wealth funds, mutual funds, bond funds, private offices, make a decision that the bond market, because of the exponential increase in U.S. debt, is not tenable. Changes will occur. What day, week, or month they will occur, who knows. But 
that's the path we're on and the path is getting riskier and riskier with no end game to safely get out of all of the debt facilities and all of the money created by the Federal Reserve plus all the debt created by the national government. So monetary policy in its current form is not helping the economy, it's putting it more at risk. And at a point, the Federal Reserve will lose the ability to influence any economic growth. So in conclusion, the Keynesian view that more money in people's pockets will drive up consumer spending with an increased gross domestic product is wrong. It hasn't happened in 40 years. And in particular, it hasn't happened in the past decade plus with interest rates continuing to be near zero and debt continuing to be issued in massive quantities by the government. The impact of all the above is going to be a contraction in the economy, and it's likely long overdue. For my own account, as I've mentioned in prior podcasts, I would move more, and I have moved more of my investments to a defensive position, looking at alternative investments, which could be certain categories of real estate, certain categories of REITs, to really defensive investments, which would include precious metals, but which would not include cryptocurrencies for reasons I've mentioned. Stay tuned, and we will bring in the new information over the next two weeks in our next podcast. So far, not being immodest, but I think we called the inflation when no one wanted to think about inflation over a year ago. We called the job dislocations more than a year ago. And we try to look at the data and we try to give you an unbiased view. We're not selling financial products. We're not recommending that you buy or not buy in the stock market unless it appears that the risk levels have increased, which they have. So please let us know if there are any questions in particular that you would like to have us include in future podcasts. And stay safe, stay secure, and continue to be vigilant. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director, Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.